Hello, and welcome to Mandatory Redistribution Party. In this episode, I met up with the stripper, sex work activist, and author Stacey Clare. Directly before this interview, I went to see her Edinburgh Fringe show, Ask a Stripper, which was advertised as a candid, saucy secrets from the strip clubs type show, but halfway through revealed itself to be uh, none other than an awareness-raising campaign for workers' rights for strippers. Directly afterwards, we discovered that the place we'd confirmed to record was no longer available and finding ourselves stuck in central Edinburgh, recording an interview in a takeaway down the road from the venue. As an amateur sound editor, this has presented me with a lot of problems, which as you'll hear, I've solved with the audio equivalent of duct tape. Please enjoy. Um, so thanks for having me along at the show today. Mm, thanks really for coming. Good. Ask a stripper. Mm. Yeah, we literally just invite the audience to ask us anything they want. And how's that? gone like it's an experiment in letting people ask you whatever they want how have you found it fucking brilliant yeah yeah it's been amazing as a performer i suffer from the problem of getting bored of doing anything twice okay as soon as something is repetitive i get i kind of just i get i don't know impatient sure. or just i don't like it um and so the beauty of this is that we are, you know, every show is different, like in a subtle way, because obviously we also still get asked a lot of the same questions. Yeah, sure. And we have got some kind of, you know, sort of stock replies and standard gags. And there is quite a lot of things that we have got in the bag yeah. of, you know, funnies that we do kind of pull out that we know that are guaranteed to kind of, you know, get the audience on our side kind of thing. I think one of the things about our show is that like, not everyone even knows that they're allowed to laugh. I mean, we, yeah. do, we do do this kind of thing, which is on the way in, the show's already started even before the show started because we come out of the bus and we kind of come and mingle and we're in character and we're like, right darlings, if you got a ticket in advance, you're in the VRP lounge with me, right? You're my VRPs. And then it's like, you know, we, get, we invite them in and then it's like, we're kind of, and but my character is like um, a little bit pissed off. Uh, right, she's just, I did notice she's that. She's like, this yeah. is the fucking worst strip club yeah. I've ever fucking worked in and it's, we're on a bus, you know, and I can't yeah. stand up straight in my heels and it's really hilarious. A very I'm, reasonable complaint, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm very tall, so yeah. when I've got my stripper heels on, I'm basically a giant woman. Yeah. And um, it's, yeah, it's just, it's a really interesting use of space. It feels like an intervention. It feels like a... Yeah, like a, like a happening more than a show. Like, a, it's completely non-traditional theatre space. Like, it's not, it's, do you know what I mean? And so I think some people 
particularly if they don't get a lot of Britishness of what we're doing. Like my character's from Essex and yeah. Morag is from, like, she's a local stripper. And, and I get, really like, liked people... how your double act, it felt a lot like a traditional comedy double act, the I way that your two personas work off each other. Yeah, because you're the, you're like the straight man and, and Morag's <laughs> the foil, because she, she is, she plays off, she always plays to undercut whatever you're trying to say. Yeah. It's really perfect. And I loved, I loved, like, halfway through, you kind of drop your personas and you go, well, actually, here's my real voice. Actually, yeah. I have a PhD. Yeah. Because we work in strip clubs, we play these public personas and look how quickly mm-hmm. we can sort of yeah. drop them and put them on. Mm. I thought that was fascinating. Mm. Yeah. We had a conversation with a friend the other day about how, um, what if you waited until the end to do the striptease? Like, you know, what, that, that kind of, you know, taking your clothes off is like powerful. And, you know, are you not like um, just giving the game away? at the beginning like and actually no we, we you know we kind of consciously decided that in order to just kind of be able to kind of go beyond the objectification and the you know we know that from our poster and the kind of curiosity that people have about sex work that people are going to come with so many kind of like loaded kind of conversations and expectations that we're just going to literally fucking get it out of the way get the clothes off yeah. get it done and then we'd spend the rest of the show answering questions, bollock naked, because that's us. We're human beings, we're bodies, we're not gonna, and we don't, we don't then become, it's almost like, you know, I feel as if if we save the striptease to the end, that it would be like, listen to us, listen to us, listen to us, but then we're gonna take your clothes off and give you what you want at the end anyway. Yeah, it, and it might feel like people might kind of come away from that feeling like, ah, they didn't need to do that. Didn't need to do. Didn't which. need to take their clothes yeah. off, and we're like, but we we want to almost like reduce the charge around the fact that we do take our clothes off for money. Mm. So the way to do that is to just get it in there. I thought it, I thought up. the way you did it was perfect because you you lead with the stripping, yeah, and then after the stripping is done, you're just now just people who have stripped, yeah. So it sort of normalises it straight away because. I think for people who haven't seen it before, myself included, like this was... Or have you been to burlesque shows? I have, that's probably the closest thing. Yeah. I guess, I, I wouldn't know what the actual line in the sand is between mm. burlesque and stripping. You got... The line in the sand? Yeah, well, what, what's the, they're, they're different mm-hmm. things, right? Well, but in what... Mon- it's money. Right. <laughs> and in what sense? Well, in the sense that burlesque, people go into doing burlesque, they don't go into it to, like, get paid really right because it's, it's a cabaret it's, it's a it's a very low paid kind sure. of not, you're entering you're, into the normal arts like comedy and poetry where you just yes, don't make money from it yes yes yeah, you know sure. there's not a lot of money I mean some people yeah. can if they do really really well and they de- de- dedicate their entire fucking lives to getting handmade costumes sure. and you know stitching every single rhinestone on by hand or whatever and you know there are some amazingly talented people in burlesque don't mm-hmm. get me wrong they are you know like um, Kitty Bang Bang mm-hmm. is an actual legend um, and you can do alright out of it but the point is it's not that's not a kind of full time uh, I don't think people can rely on that as like a, a, like sure. a full time limit well mo- most people can't anyway well what Stripping. you're saying about burlesque is burlesque is very similar to the industry I work in which is comedy which yeah. is trying to work full-time out of that. It's the very top layer of people. Otherwise, you need a day job. Mm -hmm. You need to support. So it just plucks it in with the rest of the arts, Mm -hmm. which is precarious to the point of you can't really consider it a job unless you're like a decade in and you're at the Mm -hmm. top of your game. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. So actually, 
one of the most interesting things I found about the show was the economics of how stripping works. So if you just want to mm. just want to go through that for us, of course, the economics of it. Well, what you mean, like, how does the strip club work? How does the strip club work? How does a stripper get paid? What's yeah. the, how, where does the money go? In a standard strip joint in the UK now, there's a business model that was born in around about the year 2000. It was when um, Spearmint Rhino arrived in the UK. Um, that was the first lap dancing club, like officially the first big lap dancing club to arrive in London. They opened up their flagship club on Tottenham Court Road, a guy called Simon Waugh, who he basically was exporting a business model from the US that was incredibly popular at the time. Now, the thing is, though, that 20 years ago, around about kind of late 90s, early noughties, was a period of such kind of economic excess and wealth. Like, there was so much money going around. And a lot of it was, you know, particularly in the adult industry, it was bankers' bonuses, corporate entertainment, all that shit that was getting written off as, um, you know, on the expenses, which all then came out in the wash. And, you know, what a bunch of bastards they were. But there we were to hoover it all up. So, you know, strippers were basically... um, in the, in the heart of, at the heart of, you know, economic sort of excess. And um, so the way the strip clubs ran then was that the, de- the club would just take a cut of what the dancers earned. Mm-hmm. So the dancers would pay a house fee and also possibly a commission on what they were selling, like time they're selling VIP. So, uh, which by the way, VIP room is a place where a stripper takes a client to simply... Entertainment, entertainment. Like there's, you know, the licensing won't allow for anything beyond, like a bit of a lap dance, and it's just really just. Um, sure, there's a lot of urban myths drinking. about what a VIP Yeah, absolutely. Is. Yeah. There's a, it's, it's just basically drinking, entertaining. Um, yeah, we're, we're entertainers anyway. And also, we should explain that so, a house fee is a yeah. the fee that a stripper pay, pays to the club. Yeah, it's almost like a market place, mm-hmm. right? Do in order to sell what you're selling there you need to pay the venue yeah Yeah. it's absolutely a marketplace it's like renting a pitch Mm -hmm. on a a market stall it's like um, lots and lots of jobs have uh, that that model Um, Mm -hmm. taxi drivers uh, hairdressers pay to rent their chair in a salon Um, um, lawyers barristers they pay rent to rent their chambers however in most cases Jobs like that are, you know, you're self-employed. You don't necessarily have your terms of employment dictated to you as an employee. You know, like you're not treated as an employee if you're paying for your own pitch. Like if you're a market stall holder where you can sell what you want, you can charge what you want. So, But also they can refuse you the stall next week on whatever grounds they want, right? Yeah. Because it's their pitch. Yeah. 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 So I guess that's the precarity that falls onto. Yeah, Yeah, Absolutely. The, the, the business model is 20 years out of date mm-hmm. because nowadays things have changed. I mean, the economic crisis changed everything. Banks have been, well, haven't really been regulated, but certainly the culture around this sort of excessive spending has changed. Um, there's a lot less strip clubs now than there used to be. So there, about 10 years ago, there was about 350 clubs in the country. Now there's about 150. Mm-hmm. The clubs are now you know increasing the house fees and increasing the commissions because they're very much treating us like a stream of revenue mm-hmm. like the workers then become like you know a source of income for them and um there's a lot more stigma around going to a strip club now 
Uh, a lot of people are just very wary. They just kind of know, you know, only, no, no good can come of this. Mm-hmm. And I guess, to be honest, a like, large number of like the population, like wealth is literally being redistributed. I mean, I heard Bernie Sanders talk about this recently. Something like um, the top 1% have become like 30 trillion richer in yeah. the last 10 years. Is Am I anywhere near that, the right? So I found the stat that Stacey was referring to. According to a report by the US Federal Reserve last year, the top 1% in the US economy got their mitts on a total of $30 trillion, having increased their wealth by approximately $21 trillion in the last two decades. Additionally, a report by the House of Commons projects that the top 1% wealthiest people will own two-thirds of all global wealth in one decade's time. Outside of the fringe, people are talking about the circuit is shrinking and mm. lots of people have different reasons why, but like one obvious one is going out for a night of comedy is a luxury when you are being mm-hmm. squashed further yeah. and further. If you if you have less expendable income, yeah. well then luxury and entertainment mm. yeah. is one of the first things to go, and I presume that's the same thing that would fall onto a strip club. Hundred percent. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. However, the strip clubs are very much kind of treating the current sort of scenario as just like a money grab. It was just a kind of like a last minute sort of, right, well, let's just try and get as much money as we can out of this sure, because we don't know if our licenses are going to be yeah. um, approved next year. And, you know, there was they never did anything about the workers' rights 10 years ago when they had the choice, when they had the opportunity, when they passed the Policing and Crime Act. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was the thing, if you have an unregulated work, working culture, like an, an in- industry where workers can be exploited, then they will be. Then they will be, yeah, sure. Yeah. If you want to deregulate a business, you will fast-track that to well, the, the problem with The problem with the sex industry has never been, like, really properly very well regulated. And this is, this is the interesting, this is where it sure. kind of... We're, in our show, we talk a lot about the global picture and the actual, you know, uh, how what we're doing in strip clubs links up with a wider um, global movement for sex workers' yeah. rights and decriminalization and it was cool because someone in the show this 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 tonight asked about the laws over in the states which mm. very much um you know we, we don't affect us but they kind of do because they affect the global conversation uh-huh. right because if the uk were to try and regulate strip clubs then that would provoke the ire of people who don't want strip clubs legitimized because yeah. there's many people who want strip clubs to be the, the movement to shut down strip clubs is led by a middle-class feminist agenda, yeah. which does not recognise the needs and the you know the realities of what it's like to be a working-class woman in the UK right now. This also came up in another TV uh, debate on Channel Four recently. There was a live debate about trade union activism in the strip clubs, and um, it was hosted by um, Krishna Guru Murphy. And one of my friends went on there. So one of my fellow stripper activists called Penny. She's an amazing uh, fellow comrade, com babe, as we like to call each other. And she's doing a law degree right now. Anyway, so she goes on live TV, and they put her against Eleanor Mills from the um, Times, Sunday Times. She's the uh, editorial director of the Sunday Times. And she made the classic statement. She said, well, there's plenty of other things that women can do, which I think encapsulates part of maybe the bigger problem of wealth disparity. And, you know, people of a certain age and a certain class and 
uh, believe certain... that you could just drop one oh, job and just pick another job. Absolutely, yeah. Because absolutely. they all they have. If you read their Wikipedia, they've just slinked between loads of careers because it's kind of very easy to be in that, that echelon where loads of jobs, which are basically managerial roles, you can just flink between them as long as you've got yeah, like yeah, contacts yeah. and you know yeah. familial connections. Yeah. Yeah. So it also happened to me as well in another media uh, conversation I had with um, Charlotte Mead from the Women's Equality Party. Right. Who uh, we were pitched up together on another t- t- radio debate this time, Radio 4, World at One. Um, Sarah Montague, she actually is on our side. She's pretty cool, Sarah Montague. She, she supports the strippers. And... Um, at the end of the interview I was a bit annoyed that they were giving the woman from the other side like obviously they give the woman from the Equality Party uh, the last say only the last thing she said was well when we shut down strip clubs then men will all just go and do something less sexist Oh, which wow. was the perfect. perfect yeah perfect I just uh, like Sorted. apparently yeah I was just like bingo yeah, yeah, yeah. let's ideal. go golfing yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like just that whole thing that whole idea that if you just take away the toys just take away their toys they'll you know go and yeah. do something a bit more you know I guess sex works one of the things that actually gets attacked from some sections of the left like from the mm. as it stands it's fair to say the left the vague blob that it is is divided on the issue of sex work. And as a man, I've tried to come to my own conclusions quietly and privately. The consensus changes about whether I'm a better ally by vocally supporting my branch of feminism that I agree with, or quietly staying out of women's issues and keeping my oars firmly in the boat of men's issues, like reading men and motors in the shed, and or tackling skyrocketing suicide rates by teaching the lads down at the warehouse night shift that it's okay to hug. The normalisation of the term sex work is a sign that attitudes are starting to change. But to some sections of the left, this term alone sums up everything they object to. Sex should not be work. Work should not refer to sex. Like a Peter Kay impression, they emphasise this bizarre combination of terms ad nauseum. Sex. Sex. Work. Sex. Work. Sex. Work. So here's the argument against, in a nutshell. A good socialist should not want things to enter the world of capitalism if they can exist peaceably outside of it. We do not want more things to become commodities. There already are things that we shouldn't have as commodities in the first place. Water should not be a commodity, for instance. You need that to survive. Electricity should not be a commodity. Houses should not be a commodity. Staples should not be a commodity. I actually meant like food staples, like rice and bread and carbohydrates, but let's just nationalise stationery as well, I don't mind. And as an extension of that, we shouldn't want sex or women's bodies to become a commodity either. Furthermore, the commodification of sex and or women's bodies only exists to normalise the objectification of women and perpetuate patriarchal misogynistic norms. So what's the counter-argument to that? Well, people who work in the sex industry are working-class people trying to earn a living like anyone else. Yes, bread and water shouldn't be commodities, but we don't reserve the same outrage for a baker or a guy at Greg's selling a bottle of Buxton water. Although we are righteously furious at letting agents, but they definitely deserve it. And unlike, for instance, the energy sector where you just can't get electricity if you don't have any money, sex workers aren't trying to monopolise sexuality. In fact, a majority of sex in the UK is free on the point of delivery. And rather than being a state-run service, it is provided by individuals of their own free volition 
making it one of the most anarchist recreational activities going. As for objectification, Stacey makes a good argument herself in her Good Morning Britain interview. She considers herself to be less objectified than models or women who work in the entertainment industry, whose images are taken away from themselves, modified, they lose the copyright to them, and they're used for purposes that they don't get to know anything about. Stacey, on the other hand, working as a stripper in a strip club, she is there. She is in control of her own body and how it's represented. She can disengage from customers that she doesn't want to work with. She can make decisions about what she's going to do and how she's going to be represented. And the more that she is not placed in an economically precarious position, the greater that she can make informed choices about what she's comfortable doing without having to be turned into a commodity by the fact that she needs to produce more money. The greater that she can be given rights and job security the greater degree that she isn't forced to be objectified by the nature of her work. Ultimately, I understand where the anti-sex work people are coming from. Their premises make sense to me as a Marxist feminist, but their conclusions often leave me feeling very cold. It may well be true that a feminist utopia wouldn't have strip clubs, but also it wouldn't have work, it wouldn't have money, it wouldn't have jobs. And it doesn't mean that you can bring about that utopia by penalising the women who work there. Feminism is about equality, but it's also about solidarity with the women who live in the world we live in right now. And stripping them of their jobs with no safety net is no display of solidarity. I was raised Irish Catholic. At times I'm uncomfortable with the idea that sex in any form is legal. But once you get past the fact that this is a job about sex, and just view it as a job, this just becomes a workers' rights struggle like any other. There is an organisation called Not Buying It. It's run by a lady called Sasha Rakoff. She's a very clever lady, and um, she worked in hospitals um, in medicine before she became an activist. And back in 2004, she founded an organisation called Object, and then left, and then went on to form the Not Buying It a few years ago. And both of those organisations have been two of the most kind of vociferous uh, out. Uh, uh, vocal opponent, opponents of strip club industry particularly the strip club industry and um, Sasha Rakoff has got such a bean her bonnet about male behaviour and about men going into strip clubs that she earlier this year hired a couple of men who are ex-policemen turned private investigators paid them to go and party in a strip club wearing secret cameras secretly Ooh. filming the strippers at work and catching them, breaking the law, breaking the rules of the club, which are, you know, we're not supposed to touch customers when we're giving a lap dance. Sure. Well, frankly, no one ever fucking asked us whether we thought giving, a, you know, touching a guy's knee or rubbing against his groin while we were giving a lap dance, that was never a problem for us. I don't know why this has kind of suddenly entered the kind of wider public lexicon as, um, you know, well, that's violent. This is violence against women. It mustn't happen. Because, frankly, the shit that goes on behind closed doors... Anyway, that's another... That's kind of another conversation. But back to Sasha Rakoff. So she's, sure, that's like a massive, like, invasion of personal privacy, invasion of right. workplace and professional privacy. So... Like, the idea that that's supposed to... Also involving the police. So they took Jeez the footage... Louise. Yeah, they took the footage to Sheffield Council... 
they take it along to the Sheffield City Council and say... Oh, is say, this an experiment right now in Sheffield? Yeah. Does yes, this ring any bells now? Yes, yeah. Yes. So, um... The council see the footage and their hands are tied because, right enough, it says in the licensing legislation that, well, you know, you're not supposed to touch. They did now, law, yeah, sure. the definition of revenge porn is the sharing of sexually explicit material for the purposes of causing distress. The only two possible outcomes of sharing that material were A, the strippers get sacked, or B, the clubs get shut down and then everyone gets sacked. So there is no question that that would fall under the legal definition of revenge porn. And amazingly enough, thank, thank Christ, um, the strippers involved, with the help of the, our trade union, United Voices of the World, are now filing a lawsuit against not buying it. Because there is something truly insidious about feminists working so hard and clinging to their you know sort of ideology so much that they would literally throw us under a bus literally mm. not literally not actually <laughs> yeah sure not sure. actually yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to say that's but, a huge story that's breaking that's yeah, yeah. wow stop. yeah you heard it here first um, no but you know despicable it's kind of it's gross mm-hmm. it's gross and um, if you can't actually make the sex industry go away because yeah. it will happen behind closed doors because as it does all the time. Yeah. And the only way you can try and make it go away is by criminalizing it, which drives it underground, and that's where the real violence and coercion lies, and that's where the real violence and coercion has always laid, because there's always been really poor laws around sex work. It's always been badly regulated. It's always Mm -hmm. been poor policy. It doesn't protect workers. So when we're talking about how, like, we want the sex industry regulated, well, that's another conversation. There are big differences between... Full decriminalisation, partial decriminalisation, otherwise known as the Nordic model, yeah. legalisation, and um, yeah, there's the, they're the main three. Um, or just, yeah, criminalise, criminality. Yeah. And they all have different wider social impacts. They all have different effects. And there's countries around the world, like New Zealand has full decrim. Norway has the Nordic model. Yeah. Uh, the UK, uh, sex work is kind of divided into different, well... Yeah, I mean, so for example, strip clubs are legalised. They're yeah. fully legalised because they're licensed. Yeah. Whereas other forms of sex work are decriminalised up to a point, but then there's lots of kind of behaviours around full service sex work that are criminalised, like yeah. soliciting and um, brothel keeping. And yeah, and the you. laws about what constitutes a brothel makes it like untenable, right? And that's yeah. Yes. So. Yeah. Exactly. So when we say we want regulation, what we really want is we want to empower workers to stand up against abuses of power in the industry. Like, that's the almost like the kind of anarchist sort of solution to a lot of this. It's like, we're not saying that... I suppose the left-wing um, argument is that, you know, it's social responsibility, we must protect the vulnerable women, make sure we keep them as victims, but, you know, we, we're all... There's no one to know, protect if there's no victims, so that... Right, know, sure. yeah, exactly. And then, on the other side, the right-wing argument is like, well... You know, free market capitalism, do what you want, and yeah. as long as the state is getting their cut, as long as the fucking as long you know, as this involves money, yeah, as long as as long as taxes, it? as long as yeah. taxes are being paid, fine. Sure. Whereas I think you know what we're saying is, look, we don't really care what the marketplace is or how it's 
designed or limited or it's more like can workers engage in a process to you know protect themselves which is what I think trade union activism is starting to do which is giving workers a grievance process giving workers like a clear path through you know when shit goes down here's your backup here's your support I think yeah the, the, the left aren't really getting that the left aren't really seeing that that it's what, what this really is is a safety issue yeah is there more like in the anarchist tendency is that have you found more solidarity there because they're because mm. you're pushing towards collectivization mm. that leans way more into the anarchist bent yeah yeah, yeah basically yeah one of the best collaborations I've done yet is with been um, been with um, a newspaper called Dope, mm-hmm. run by Dog Section Press, uh-huh. and um, it's uh, like an alternative to Big Issue. Right. So um, whereas where with Big Issue, there's a lot of gatekeeping yeah. around who can sell it, and they have to have a license, and they have to have training, and they have to have a fixed address, and there's a lot of actually like it's not it's not very it's not that egalitarian. Yeah. Dope magazine is a an anarchist newspaper, basically. Right, sure. And it's given out for free to people, to homeless people. They come and collect it from Freedom Bookshops in Whitechapel. Mm-hmm. And then they can sell it for as much money as they want. And it's like, it's that kind of direct action of empowering your most vulnerable people mm-hmm. to literally, within, you know, within a matter of days, to access what they need. Um, same with I think the trade union stuff we're like literally going okay look enough's enough we can actually do the legal stuff we can do the legal claims and take the clubs to court and actually you know build workers rights into the system Um, so I very much kind of make that like the plea at the end of the show is like we need we need to keep these places open we need our regulated spaces to stay open because trying to establish workers' rights out in, a, in an even more precarious kind of workplace where there isn't actually sure. any regulation at all. How could you have a, a union for illegal work? That's exactly. just not going to work. Exactly. Getting United Voices of the World on board, kind of like linking up with the trade unions. Do you want to say a bit about who they are? United Voices of the World are a trade union. They're like a sort of lateral, uh, non-hierarchical, um, grassroots trade union. They're quite new, actually. They're only about six years old, but they've already been, like, smashing the arse out of it with, like, big wins at places like Topshop and um, Ministry of Justice and oh, nice. Bank of America. And it's they um, support people uh, who are traditionally in the gig economy, doing precarious work. A lot of people are cleaners, a lot of people are security workers, a lot of people are working for agencies where they have zero-hour contracts. A lot of people are um, just, yeah, it's like low-wage. I mean, they've basically been supporting our fight now for a year, and we're starting to get somewhere. We're starting to see, you know, strippers are now putting in, like, claims against their clubs. We've had a few strippers last year won back thousands of pounds in unpaid holiday pay from their club that, like, fired them unfairly. And And how much of a switch around? Like, is that kind of stuff unheard of? Is this, like, really... Is this a new degree of gaining ground? It is pretty damn radical. It is pretty, I think the kind of, the potential for the, you know, like the wider social impact that this can potentially have is the message that we won't be pushed around anymore. Mm. And first of all, we won't be pushed around by the clubs. 
right? Because if you do, we're going to sue you. And secondly, we're not going to be pushed around by feminist campaigners who are going to try to shut down their clubs because if you do, then we'll sue you. You know, and then the third thing that's happening is we're now gradually starting to have a voice and a say at a policy level. So the public consultations that are happening around the country, there's one happening in Camden at the moment. So Camden City Council are doing a public consultation to, you know, review their policy on strip clubs. And they've invited us to basically, you know, to, to input on that. So um, this all sort of began, I mean, about 20 years ago, um, back in 2002, it kind of started in Camden. Back in 2002, there was a paper published by an organisation called Eve's Housing, which is a women's rights organisation working with vulnerable women. Uh, and they did a study called the Lilith Report. And the, claim, the, the study claimed that there was a link between lap dancing clubs and increased levels of violence in the area. So they looked at Camden from 98 to 2002 and they said that they saw, oh, the national average, so the, sorry, the rape and sexual assault statistics were higher than the national average. And they linked that to the arrival of Spearmint Rhino, which opened camp in Camden, right, on Tottenham Court Road. Now, 13, uh, sorry, 11 years later, Fast forward to 2013, Dr. Brooke Bagnanti, who is the PhD researcher who's behind the Belle de Jour books. Right, yeah, um, yeah. So she is a social scientist, right? So she goes back to that report and she drills down into it and she says, well, actually, the methodology, this, 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 this report doesn't stand up to social science methodology. The sample size was too small. So she actually looked over a 10-year period and she, saw, she found that there was a, a, a drop. Oh, right. There was an actual decline in the, st- the rape and statistics, sorry, rape and sexual assault statistics of the area. Yeah. She then pointed out that the population of Camden was also higher than national average. So in so fact, it would have, a higher it would have had yeah. a higher instance. And so that, that, that statistic was taken out of context. And then the third floor was that there were other boroughs of London like Islington and um, Lambeth where they're equally high instances of rape and sexual assault and no lap dancing clubs. Right. So the whole thing So just like they cherry-picked yeah. the data they needed. Yeah. Absolutely. And, the de- and this is endemic in, in terms of how the sex industry is reported on is that statistics are cherry-picked to support the narratives and to keep the stigma alive. Yeah. It's pretty shocking because then Eleanor Mills on Channel 4 mm-hmm. the other week when she's talking to my friend Penny trots out that same report 15 years on right. and you know claims it as fact and this is kind of what we're up against is that what this is why I told you the story about Sasha Rakoff and how hard she's worked to get that narrative into the public conversation or into the kind of you know what people think about strip clubs is oh it's that's violence against women that yeah. is and we're like, Thank, thanks, violence against women. And so, okay, so now you want to criminalize it. Now you want to make it illegal, make it go away and make us more precarious. It's, you know, it's just, it's kind of exhausting. But we, what we're doing is, I think, slowly, gradually beginning to raise these very important points and making people more precarious makes them more vulnerable. I mean, stigma has a clear a clear effect. Stigma creates uh, silence. People don't talk about their work as sex workers. You're three times more likely to be misdiagnosed 
um, from it with an illness if you're a sex worker because you um, are not going to talk about your job in hospital or your right. doctor. Yeah. You know, I think that statistic. I think that statistics comes from the World Health Organization. Right. And so, if you've got a sign, imagine being a sex worker and not being able to talk about your job to your, uh, you know, accountant, your fucking, I don't know, like parents' evening. Sure, you just can't um, get stuff done, right? Because you have to live. This strange double yeah. life. Your friends, your family. Yeah. I mean, some I know some sex workers who are like, you know, they work as teachers. Yeah. And so, you know, if that if that connection is made, that's it. Career over, mm. life over, no future prospects, no, you know what I mean, no pension. And so then if you can't talk about it, well how are you gonna access support and resources when you need them? How are you gonna find how do you have you don't have a community? And then that makes you vulnerable. And if you're vulnerable, if you're more, that's that's when the harm happens. Like yeah. you know, I was saying in the show, perpetrators of violence know who their victims are. They know the profile of the victims. They go after the most vulnerable people who probably don't have a lot of support sure. and aren't that's don't have a lot of like, value yeah. and sort of social status. So um, it's not helping. You know, this this language that, you, that, that if you go on the not buying website, man, it's fucked up. Like. The stuff they, the, the language they use to talk about strip clubs and women who strip is just as objectifying, if not more objectifying, as, you know, being how we get spoken about in the media. What kind of language? Oh, is like, that? Um, oh, you know, women think it's empowering. Women's idea of, some women's idea of empowerment is just wrapping their implants around, implants around the nearest pole. Like, what? Like, it's dehumanizing. Yeah, that doesn't sound very like that doesn't sound like liberatory feminism to me to yeah. attack someone like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do you think with these conversations now being raised, and I guess it's kind of a tumultuous time, right? Because a lot of councils are making decisions on if they want to make restrictions. Yeah, but a lot of women, a lot of strippers are getting together now and painting banners and for doing street protests and actually engaging in this. So you think there's a lot of well, um, Bristol, one of the clubs in Bristol, uh, Urban Tiger, has become the first strip club in the country to recognise the union. So the right. strippers there now have union recognition, which now, now means they have bargaining power, which now means they have a clear process. You know what I mean? Right, that's um, great, yeah. Yeah, and like the, you know, the strippers of Sheffield, well, it looks like they probably will have their club shut down, but yeah. they're suing not buying it for the revenge porn. Yeah. And, um, you know, the strippers in Glasgow have all been organising with the GMB to do the Ask the 700 campaign, yeah. and they've had their, you know, tables out in the streets and getting people to, you know, the public. The public are on their side. I mean, yeah. the public get it. You know, working class people get it. If you put women out of work, put people out of work, it's, just, um, it's more strain. It's more strain on the economy. In the yeah, it has to be those kind of... It's like the journalistic class who don't get it because yeah. they don't understand the precarity of having to work. Yeah, yeah. yeah but anyone totally. else who's like, I'm going to lose my job. Well, it doesn't matter what your job is. You're going to lose your job. And um, I recently saw that in the press, uh, in the Scotsman... Um, I forget his name, but one of the one of, he's now an ex-policeman, but one of the men who helped design the licensing policy in Scotland around strip mm. clubs has written he's written a piece and it's a warning and he's saying we really be careful we, we really need to be careful before we wade in with yeah. our you know we know best about you know we know we know what's right for you poor women and um, he gets it you know shutting down strip clubs is not good. It's not helping. Mm. It doesn't make it go away. It makes it more ri risky. 
I feel like every conversation I have about this gets really, really nebulous really quickly. Yeah. And it's almost like about five or six different conversations need to be had in order to like fully wrap your head around it. Because there's so many strands to the whole yeah, thing, right? Yeah, it's very intersectional and it links up with like race and class and yeah. economics and... I'd like to start, I'd like to think the media, mainstream media, could start to unpack some of this in a kind of, you know, in a way that like, in a gentle way that we've seen like movement around the conversation of around mental health, for example, yeah. uh, conversations around um, disability. Um, I mean, what we'd, we'd want then is just better representation yeah because i mean the way sex workers are portrayed in the media generally oh is a plot device they're they're, they're chopped up in a fridge to motivate or just to show that a villain is very bad yeah just a sort of expendable character yeah you you literally yeah i mean hooker jokes in fact last time last year i was here at the fringe and i went to um best of burlesque at the piccolo tent Uh and they had an mc and he was the only male voice in the show and of course all the performers are female yeah and, you know, I sort of looked at the watch, watching this show just being like, man, this is so, so problematic about, yeah. like, the whole form, format of this thing in the first place. And then he, he, he makes a hooker joke. And before he could even get the punchline out, I <laughs> lost my fucking shit, right? I heckled him. I yelled yeah. at him. Don't you fucking dare... Like this, what was it? His the joke was how many how many prostitutes does it take to change a light bulb? Uh, well, the two that are locked in my basement right now. Wow, or something like yeah. oh yeah, something along those oh, lines. Wow. I flipped my fucking lid and I yelled at him. They're called sex workers and they're fucking heroes. And not only that, but I like kind of um, made a big fuss. Like after the show, I was like, I want to talk to who's managing. I want to talk to isn't it? Obviously, yeah. it's like assembly that are running the piccolo tent, right? It's right. in the assembly gardens. And I was like, well, first of all, I want my money back, mm-hmm. and secondly, I want you to t- make sure that he never gets to tell a hooker joke again. And mm-hmm. I really went off at them, and I was like, I'm a fucking sex worker, and I, you know, don't appreciate yeah. being like referred to as a fucking kidnap victim and and it really shook them up like it really really they were like oh shit yeah yeah yeah, okay i'm imagining when you want to be you can be terrified (laughs) i think you've got the aura and that was without the shoes (laughs) like just before we started recording you got them to turn the radio off just instantly (laughs) pure intimidation (laughs) that wasn't intimidation darling that was just flirting that's another form of intimidation for me it's equally scary. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Hmm. I've spent 13 years working in strip clubs. I've got some skills. You oh, know yeah. I mean, I may as well apply them in my oh, daily life. Like, it should be considered a weapon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I think I'd quite like to see, for example, um, you know, big, you know, the big five, like Assembly and Pleasance, I'd like them to pledge. I'd like a, I'd like a public pledge to, you know, um, make sure that they get it, you know, like um, to pledge that none of their performances, none of their performers or comedians yeah. can use sex workers as a fucking plot device or a joke, yeah. you know, that's fucked. I mean, I was um, watching on TV um, last night a performer... Uh, Jay Lafferty. Oh, yeah. And she's a Scottish female comedian, stand-up, 
and uh, she was on um, Susan Kalman's uh, Best of Burlesque or, you know, Fringe Benefits or something, recorded yeah. live over at the BBC, um, Harriet, you know. Yeah. And she comes on and she talks about, she's saying, ah, the word bosom, Scottish word bosom. And she goes into this gag about how, you know, Scottish grannies call each other bosoms or they call their granddaughters bosoms. She says, well, I looked up the word bosom. It actually means a woman of low, reputable status. A prostitute, basically, ladies and gentlemen. So right. grannies are all calling their granddaughters wee hoors. Everyone's ho, ho, laugh, oh, laugh, yeah, laugh. Yeah. And I'm like, this is 2019. Yeah. And you're on fucking BBC Four. Yeah. And what the actual fuck? Like, are we, and, and it's, it's, you know, women, like, led thing. Well, it's Susan Carmen's the host and she's a female comedian. I'm just like, just because men are doing it doesn't mean that that's okay. Like, I think that comedy is a real good weather vane at times for where the national conversation is. Mm. And the fact that in comedy, so mental health picking up a lot, class recognition still got a way to go. Obviously, like, the race thing's been like tightened up loads yes. but you can tell which marginalised groups people in general give a shit about mm. by which ones comedians don't feel afraid to talk about and objectifying can you yeah. imagine using a person in a wheelchair as the butt of a joke exactly. can you imagine but that shows the, like, the journey that's yet to go right mm. yeah totally because like very rarely have I heard someone use the phrase sex worker in a joke but that, <laughs> that's even because if you were to do it, because because the the weather vane isn't quite there, people would feel that you were being overly PC. Yeah. And be like, oh, here comes the PC. Like even saying mm. sex worker, mm. it feels like you're um, virtue signaling, right? Mm. Like, yeah. So that's that's showing where the work needs to be done there. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, yeah. yeah. I think it is. A, that's a really great. Um, uh, dip test, I want to say. The dip test is good, yeah, <laughs> good way <laughs> For like. Um, comedy dip test. The comedy dip test, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I, I think, hence, maybe this is why. So the show, Ask a Stripper, mm -hmm. has been like quite successful, as in it's been the first year that we've done this. And we've been basically selling out every night and yeah. we've, you know, like got the numbers in and people are clearly coming because it's like, oh, they're, you know, the, the yeah. words kind of got out that like we're the kind of, um, I don't know, like the voice of like the insight. Like we have, we're, we're actually, people are curious enough to come and kind of let themselves be led into this conversation about workers' rights. Yeah. They're allowing it, like we're, let, we're doing it in a way that it's kind of, well, we came up with this on the way here. We came yeah. up with the Trojan whores. Yeah. I was, saying, <laughs> I was saying it's such a good, like it's activism by the back door because you're just saying, come and ask a hooker whatever you want. Yeah. But by the midway point, you were very strongly going, this is a show about workers' rights. And that's not explicitly what you came to, yeah. but that is where you are right now. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. that was great. Yeah. It was and, such um, a sneaky move. It is sneaky, I know. I love it. I'm yeah. just like... Ah, oh, you know, this is so much easier than trying to, you know, get Sasha Rakoff to talk to me in yeah, that room sure. in yeah. the council, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then also it's kind of, yeah, you know, people are going to sort of, I don't know, just maybe join a few different dots when, they, when this comes up again and they might think differently next time they hear a hooker joke or something, you know? It's yeah. like... I think that's just how it starts. You just start having conversations and, mm. you know, these things can snowball quite quickly you just need to 
just takes the right few people who have. I mean, a lot of our media and our culture are controlled by a precious few. Yeah. You just need, you just need to create an ambient culture around where they're finally influenced by. Yeah. Mm. I know the bastards. We'll get them. It'll happen. Yep. Um, cool. Slowly, slowly, one high heel step at a time. Mandatory Redistribution Party was produced and created by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean. Stacey Clare is releasing her first book next year. The Ethical Stripper is available for pre-order now on Unbound Books. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to support us, please generate buzz online throughout whatever means you have available. A meme, perhaps. Don't overdo it, though. A modest meme, please. As modest as they come. <laughs>